you know, in 1962, when I went to Balaman to the seminary first time, the the best friend whom ever I met was the very reverend Father Antipas, who was before me. And we uh, spent probably a long, long time together at the seminary. Then he was educated at the American University of Beirut as a major in philosophy. And he finished his master degree and served also as a deacon in the Archdiocese of Beirut. Then he came to St. Vladimir to uh, continue his theological studies, uh, probably in the early 70s. Then he uh, was ordained as a priest, and now he is the pastor of the one of the largest uh, cathedrals in the Archdiocese in Detroit. Uh, Father Antipas is uh, one of the brilliant uh, students as uh, God has gifted him with many talents, uh, musical and uh, philosophical and theological talents. He's also a, uh, a professor at the Antiochian House of Studies. He comes every year with us to teach at the Antiochian village. And I you know, could say that he was the most brilliant student among all of us in the theological school of Balaman. Uh, so I, I'm honored to introduce to you uh, our beloved brother, Father Joseph Antipas. Welcome, Father Joseph. Also, uh, a colleague of uh, in the Department of Liturgics and Translation is the very Reverend Edward Hughes, born and raised in Pennsylvania as a German Lutheran. And he got his degree in the Near East Culture in uh, Lycoming Center? Lycoming. Converted in the year 1975 uh, to 1977. He went to St. Vladimir Seminary in 1977, 1980, uh, the academic year. He has done some uh, some work and postgraduate work at the Catholic University in Washington and in Syriac and the Christian Arabic in the year, academic year 1980-81. He was assigned to the Antiochian village 81-82, ordained in 1982, assigned to several churches in Texas, Pennsylvania, and now he is in the Boston area at St. George. 
He is the co-chairman of the Department of Liturgics and Translations. You know, and mainly he's the, the, the chairman. I'm just, if you see my name, it's not, uh, uh, I'm not doing anything for the department. He's doing everything. Uh, <laughs> he is uh, the dean of the New England clergy. Uh, he is uh, the commissioner on the Western Rite uh, and uh, he is on the board of trustees of St. Luke Priory and advisor in New England region of the Aona. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I also had the pleasure to work with him in the translation of the, uh, you know, pan-Orthodox translation into, uh, into the English language. Uh, we were both the representatives of the Antiochian Archdiocese within this uh, uh, commission, and uh, he is well known by his scholarly work and knowledge of uh, la languages and uh, liturgics. So welcome, uh, Father Edward Hughes. How long do I have? All the time. No, not all the time. 40 minutes. 50 minutes. We're stopping at noon? Well, for questions on your on Okay. Your thank you, Father Michelle. And especially thank you for that introduction to the Antiochian Divine Liturgy. The Clementine Liturgy that, uh, that he went over with you he was a little bit shy, I think, of the, uh, the influence that Antioch has had over the centuries, probably. The, uh, the West Syrian liturgies of Cappadocia, Asia Minor, Byzantium, Byzantium and Armenia are also daughter liturgies of uh, Antioch. And since most of the Byzantine bishops of uh, Constantinople came from Antioch or Asia Minor. They were carrying with them the Antiochian liturgical tradition. So in fact, Antioch is the wellspring of all of the Eastern liturgies, and probably especially the Byzantine liturgies of Constantinople. And he, uh, he kept saying some things were controversial and, and scholars were divided, but everything he said was by far accepted by most scholars and when one or two want to dissent I don't think that's a controversy. He stood exactly in, in the middle of the, uh, of the strongest historical mainstream as he presented that. <clears throat> I'm supposed to be talking about the developing of the, of the Tipicon which is used to govern the services of the church in a sense. Father Schmemann used to say, may God rest his soul, that uh, people imagined that the Tipicon fell from heaven and that it didn't. And he's right, it didn't. Uh, how many of you have seen a Tipicon? Oh, a fair number of you have seen one. If, uh, if you hadn't seen it and you were to imagine what it looked like, 
you might imagine something looking like the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary. And instead, it looks more like the Reader's Digest version. There it is. It's, it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a huge book, and it's printed in big print. <laughs> so it's not, it's not what people imagine. It's even smaller in Arabic, <coughs> but it's in smaller print, you see. That's how they got away with that. And uh, it exists in, uh, in Bulgarian and Serbian and Church Slavonic and Romanian. And in fact, all the, uh, the languages that are needed for the church. And it's existed in that form since 1888, which is very, very recent. It's a modern book because the liturgical life of the church is always modern. And it's always changing to suit the needs of the, uh, of the faithful. And in that sense, the Tipicon is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It describes what the current tradition of the church is regarding the customs of its liturgical life. It is not something that came down to tell the church how to pray, but to describe to those who want to pray with the church how it's done. The development of the Tipicon is tied to the development <coughs> of the Ordo, which is the structure of the divine services. And we have to say specifically matins and vespers, because this is the, uh, the heart of the uh, liturgical prayer outside of the liturgy. And these prayers developed entirely separately from the liturgy, amazingly, and with a whole different set of uh, dynamics pushing them. When Christianity became legitimate with Constantine and gained the freedom to actually own churches and begin a public prayer life outside of, of house churches, in the large cities, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, Alexandria, there developed a very spectacular form of public service for morning and evening, which was called the sung services, the asmaticos. And they were very, very long and involved great crowds of clergy. You may have read at different times of the amount of clergy that were at uh, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. And that wasn't unique to that church. You'd have found the same crowds of clergy in Milan or in Antioch or in uh, Caesarea in Cappadocia when they served these services. Uh, ordained singers and ordained psalm readers and deacons and subdeacons and, and doorkeepers and, and huge processions that would go from place to place and sometimes even from church to church. And these, uh, these services were a source of great joy to the, to the faithful. But they took an awful lot of planning and an awful lot of, of uh, personnel to put them on. And a little bit after that time, as the monastics went out into the wilderness, there began a, a parallel development of liturgical life. The monks wouldn't serve those services. They felt that they were inappropriate to the life of monks. And at one point, uh, Sophronius later became Patriarch of Jerusalem, and John Moscus, who wrote uh, The Paradise of the Fathers, 
were visiting all these monks out in the east, and they happened upon uh, St. Nilus of Sinai. And they said, Dear Father, in your monastery, why is it that you don't serve the services like we're used to in the churches? And he says, We do, we do. Don't you see it? They said, No, we don't. We missed all the troparia and all the hymns and, and all of the, uh, the processions. And he says, Well, of course we can't do that. Because in those days, uh, ordained singers sang the, the hymns and the priests sang the troparia and all these other ordained people. He said, monks aren't ordained, so we can't do any of that stuff. So we just do what we can. We do the readings of the Psalms and we read the hymn, Gladsome Light at Vespers and, and the Certain of the Biblical Canticles at Matins, exactly like you all do, but we cut out everything else in between because we can't, we can't handle all that. And all of the fathers spoke on it. Pachomius the Great spoke on it. Sabbas the Sanctified, who later becomes the originator of the Tipicon. Uh, Silvanus, Pombo, Barsinufius. <coughs> you pick up any of the desert fathers and they all spoke against uh, church-style services because they felt that all of that singing was dangerous. And to have all these ordained clergy was a dangerous thing. It, it created pride and, and distinctions among the monks that had nothing to do with, uh, with prayer and salvation of soul. And uh, Barsinuvius, in uh, explaining how their life was to city people who came out to know why they didn't pray, said, Skeet dwellers do not have the hours, nor do they sing hymns. They pray. And he felt, felt that that was just about enough. The, uh, I, I saw the advertisement this, for this book just came this week in my church, and I saw the back of it and I thought, Abba Macarius is, is perfect. Someone said to him, how ought one to pray? Now obviously, you can tell by what, what he says that, that this was the context. Why aren't you talking about these huge, long, three-hour church services? And he said, there's no need at all to make long discourses. It's enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will, and as you know, have mercy. If the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need, and he shows us his mercy. <laughs> now, this is very different than life in a cathedral church. So these monks out in the desert were praying very simply with their hearts. The church rite was long, involved, and very, very ornate. The cathedral services began to dry out around uh, the year 1000, all over uh, the Orthodox world. And the monastic services came to be the services of the church. First off, in villages all over the Orthodox East and the West, the monastic services came to be common for little parish churches. And the reason is they didn't have singers and psaltists and chanters and hundreds of clergy. They had a village of farmers and uh, small merchants who worked for a living and they didn't have time to practice all of this and arrange all of this and they couldn't do it. So the monk's way of service was perfect for the parish. So they picked it up and they exactly went with it. And then other things began to happen, and Antioch again begins to be the, the center and the source of the change. And what happened was the major 
cities began to suffer from civil unrest and uh, political instabilities. And if you remember any of the history of the ancient world, you know that uh, by the time you get to the, the fifth and sixth century, the, the peace of the world starts to break down. And it happens that it broke down first in Antioch. The Persians ravaged Antioch from 538 to 540, and then they no sooner left, they came back again in 611, and no sooner did they leave, and in 638 the Arabs came in, and there was all sorts of displacement of peoples fleeing to the mountains and other places like that. And then in 742, the uh, local caliph ordered that it was forbidden to speak or celebrate liturgical services in any language other than Arabic. Now all of this uh, stuff, these hymns and everything, didn't exist in Arabic, to tell you the absolute truth. And they, uh, these services already had disappeared by then in Antioch, and they were serving the, uh, the monastic services. In the 900s, as Father Michel pointed out, Antioch was again captured by the Byzantines, and Byzantine services came back briefly. Because in 1086, the, Tur the Turks captured the city. And in 1099, the Latins captured the city. And in 1154, the Byzantines captured it back, but let the Latins stay there <laughs> as sub-rulers. And this was the time of Patriarch Balsaman, who couldn't even, he never entered the city of Antioch in his entire career as Patriarch of Antioch. He spent his whole time in Constantinople because the situation was so unfortunate there. And of course, in 1260, the uh, Mamluk sultans of Egypt uh, took over, and then the Turks again in 1453. So Antioch didn't enjoy any of the period of, of uh, freedom that so many other places had. But uh, Jerusalem fell with it, and by 1009, there was no more sung services in Jerusalem. They hung on longer in outlying areas. Constantinople managed to last until 1204 when the Crusaders, the Latins, sacked the city and that was the end of any sung services in Constantinople. In Russia, remember they received Christianity in the 900s, so they received Byzantine Christianity at its height and its glory along with the sung services. Uh, it fell out of use in Russia in the 1250s with the Tartar invasion. They couldn't support it anymore. Novgorod lasted clear until 1478, when they finally <laughs> fell to the Tartars. And probably in Novgorod was the last of the Byzantine sung services. Thessalonica fell just before them to the Turks in 1457 or so in there, and that completely wiped it out. But for us in Antioch, it disappeared contemporary with Jerusalem, if it even lasted that long. So we went to monastic services not only in our villages, but in our, our uh, centers. And Byzantine services, or the Byzantine services that were displaced were psalms in groups of three, separated by <coughs> hymnography, which was largely scriptural and canticle, and then composed pieces, which they were calling in those days treparia. You did that last night when you did Great Compline. It's probably the last hanger-on of those old Byzantine form of services. 
and you probably noticed that it had interminable beginnings. How and many times did you start again, holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, sang another set of three songs, and then you did a couple something else's, had, a, had a something close to a dismissal, and then you started all over again with another set of three psalms, and on it went. Well, this was exactly the way those sung services were put together in groups of three psalms all the way through. The hours that we did this morning is a group of three psalms with the regular beginning at the beginning and then some kind of hymnography immediately following. And then you notice you did the Holy God again and then another bit of hymnography and then you finished it off. The hours, which were foreign to the, uh, to the monks, were the liturgical development of the, the, uh, the Eastern sung office. And even though we have them in, in much simplified form, you can still see the way they were built. And uh, they also were characterized by lots of processions. And if you do great compline on the eaves of uh, Christmas and Theophany, then you're, uh, you're familiar with the, the uh, litia stuck in the middle of compline. And that was a procession to somewhere else in the church while they sang those hymns. And you, you can begin to see how that, those sung services felt even though matins and vespers were much grander than uh, Great Compline, or say the Royal Hours, which you're all familiar with too. The, the monks kept one of the customs of the uh, Byzantine service, which was all-night vigil. In Byzantium, on the eaves of the great feasts and on Saturday night, the faithful assembled in church and stayed there for eight hours or more. And it was uh, the hallmark of Byzantine piety, liturgical piety, they spend all night in church to prepare for the Eucharist. Uh, the uh, spiritual writer Martyrius, who's called Sahadona in, uh, in Syriac, was writing way off in the east uh, under the Persians in his book of perfection, when he's talking about why we should, we should pray during the night, he says, you know, the Byzantines next door to us, they spend all Saturday night in church. And, and we, miserable people, we, we hope to get up and pray a little bit during the night. But imagine if we were like the Byzantines. So by his day, you see, in the East, it was already disappearing, along with the sung services. But in the Eastern Byzantine-style monasteries, they still kept it. And Sabas who uh, lived out uh, south of Jerusalem, was very much excited by all-night vigil. And in his monastery, they kept that. While they didn't keep so many of the other things, he did keep all-night vigil. And that's very important for the development of the Tipicon. Because what he did was write down for his monks how it was his custom to keep the services. And they had services in monasteries all over the area. He had a major monastery, but he had daughter monasteries. And he was very free in his liturgical practice. He allowed the Armenians to serve in Armenian and keep Armenian-style services. He allowed people to serve in Syriac and Greek in their monasteries that were dependent on him. Whatever was necessary pastorally for them to pray, that was fine with him. But he wanted a general outline of how services should go, and so he wrote down one. And this is the first hint of a typicon that the church sees. And it's, it's beyond important 
for the church. Eventually, the monks start to enjoy hymnography. And Patriarch Sophronius, who was a monk of Marsabas Monastery, who died in 644, wrote an awful lot of our hymnography. And he's followed by John of Damascus in the exact same monastery who died in 780, and of course his brother and his cousin. And then there's uh, Theophan the Branded, who died in 850, who suffered under the iconoclasts. And he's also a big hymnographer, and you see quite a bit of their work throughout the Triodian, the Pentecostalian, and the Menaean. Uh, are you all familiar with those books? If we get to a term or something like that you don't understand, I'd appreciate it if you stick up your hand and let me know so we can kind of understand where we're at. So one of the questions last night was about what Mineon is. Okay. We'll put it off for a moment, though. <laughs> That'll be all right with you. Because we're going to, I'm going to come to the rest of the books and we'll hit them all at once. There was a monastery in Constantinople called the Studian Monastery. And they had some major workers there. Alexios of the Studios Monastery was very interested in the services of the church, the way the monastics would do them. And he tried to organize an order for his monks how they would put together the services. And he had, in his monastery, great hymnographers too. Theodore the Studite, who died in 836, and Joseph, Archbishop of Thessalonica, who died in 825, are two of the, the major uh, hymnographers who worked in Constantinople. And you see that the dates are moving along in the same time period. This is the time of the great monastic hymn writers, and much of their work is, uh, makes up our major books nowadays. By the time you get to a few hundred years later, the 12th and 13th century, our modern forms of our, the services are absolutely complete. You can pick up service books from the 1200s and you find matins and vespers and all of the hymnography laid out for you almost exactly as we find it today. Uh, of course, there was no printing presses. So this place over here had a manuscript and that place over there had a manuscript and they had different sets of hymns depending on whose they chose and, and different uh, traditions. And that becomes a problem uh, and also a great richness for the church. And later on it, it kind of disappears because of, uh, of, of printing presses. The monks of the Studian created for us the uh, Triodian, and the Pentecostarian. The monks of Marsavas created for us the Aktoichos and also some of our occasional services. And together they created what we call the Menaean. And I think we ought to deal with those now.
the Orlogian contains the basic outline of what the services are built on. That's uh, our red service book. If you open it up to Matins and Vespers, it has an outline of what is Matins and Vespers, and they plugged in the verses from Tome 1 in there. But if you were to, to cover those up, which I recommend to all the seminarians, cover those up with pieces of paper, and you have the structure of the service. Blot out all that Tome 1 stuff, and then write on there, this is where we put the tone of the day. And you can see exactly the structure of the outline of the service. That's what you'd find in an Orlogian. For Matins, Vespers, the Hours, and some other services. The Liturgicon meshes with that exactly with the priest parts. If this has the outline of the chanter's parts, this has the priest parts in it. Now our Liturgicon gives you a little bit of both, because uh, we tend to like to see things under one cover. But if you pick them up in Greek, I mean, all the way back to uh, the time of Marsavis himself, there's the first Orologian, with the outline of what the services are and the, and the basic psalm verses as they're there, you find it stays exactly the same. These two books provide you just the order. But if you have those books, you still can't do anything. Because you need to have the verses to stick in there. And that's what all the rest of this is for. St. John of Damascus had access to an awful lot of the earlier hymnography of the Byzantine Church. Much of it is anonymous. In fact, almost all of it is. Some of those hymns date back all the way to uh, the very earliest centuries of the church and refer to a time when the whole world was pagan because they make reference to pagan culture. And some of the most beautiful, uh, gorgeous, and liturgically rich hymns come from that very early period. What St. John did was gather them together and arrange them in a fashion so that they could be used over the course of eight weeks. See the octo in the front there? He arranged them to be sung according to eight modes of uh, church singing over the course of eight weeks. And if you've noticed in the liturgical guide, uh, this week is tone one, next week is tone two, the week after that is tone three, and then we start the whole cycle over again. And that's not just on Sundays when you get those resurrectional hymns, but all week long. And he arranged the themes for each day. He's credited with it anyway. And he arranged these ancient hymns according to the schematic that he had in mind. Monday, he talks about the holy angels and a lot about repentance. Tuesday, he talks about St. John the Baptist. He's very excited by St. John the Baptist because it's his patron saint and the patron saint of the big cathedral in Damascus, which is still standing, in which is the head of John the Baptist. It was the, the cathedral of St. John the Baptist, and that's his home church after all. And he's named for that saint. So he has a, a personal love for him. And he put him there on Tuesday. Wednesday and Friday he has the Holy Cross, which also was an exciting feature in Jerusalem and Palestine, because that's where the cross was. And on Thursday he makes hymns to St. Nicholas. 
and Saturday is given over uh, to the martyrs and to the departed. Don't the apostles follow through? Yeah, along with St. Nicholas, yes. <coughs> he puts them both there. That, that day is it. And the Virgin flies around on Saturday a little bit, too. <laughs> but she, she's kind of pushed out in, in, in later forms of the tradition. But that is the oldest strata of hymnography that we have. And while John, the Bapt John of Damascus didn't write all of it, he wrote a chunk of it, including much of the stuff for the departed. He had a great interest in that. The monks at the Studion did the Triodion and the Pentecostarian. One of the features of, of John of Damascus's Octoichos is that in Matins is a canon, which is the, that's the whole centerpiece of Matins. And it's sung to nine biblical odes. Just like we do Lord I Call on a particular psalm, it's done that way to the nine biblical odes. And we usually never do ode two except during Lent. So there's really only eight. So if you look at your canon in the Red Book on Sunday morning, you'll see there's odes one, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is the, is the barest skeleton of what is really the canon of, of the church. And if you pick up your Orologian, it gives you all nine of the biblical odes in there. During, well, the monks in the studium didn't want to do that. They only gave us three instead of nine. And that's why their book is called Of Three Odes, because in every matin service is only three, and that's what triodian means. And the Pentecostarian is the book of 50s. It's the book that starts on the 50th day after Easter, or af yeah, and after uh, Easter and continues right on to the end. So this is 40 days before and the 50 days after. And uh, Father Nezhem mentioned that the Russians call the one the flowery triodian, which is odd because it isn't three-oded. And I was fascinated that the Syriac called it that. That's really an interesting, very interesting development. The Russians invented nothing after all. They got it all from us. <laughs> it's, the, it's the fact. I mean, they, 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 it was hand-delivered to them in the, in the 10th century, uh, all packaged up and ready to go. Uh, it wasn't that way for us. And the way these names fall, you can see how the earlier strata moved over there. The services for the saints. You know, there's a bunch of saints for every day of the year, and there's 365 days of the year. And it's convenient to gather those into, into 12 volumes. And it's, uh, it's convenient, but not crazy, because there's 12 months of the year. And there's one volume for each month. And... Menaean comes from the Greek word for month. And that's, it's, they're the monthly books. There's 12 of them. Although you'll find, they'll find them bound differently, there's, there's still 12 of them. And they start with the first day of the month and they end with the last day of the month. And they're filled with the services for the saints of the day. And that's what the Menaean is. It's the services for the saints of the day. The rest of the stuff is, is weekly by theme and day and... and seasonal, and other directional, but this is specifically the saints of the day. Now, with all that material, uh, which is, some of it, sometimes it's used simultaneously from three of those, four of those books of the five. It's impossible to use the Triodian and Pentecostarian at the same time. But you can be using, 
the rest of the four. Because that's really one work. It's really two halves of one work. It's two volumes. The Easter season. But you could be using any three, four of those at one time. And how in the world are you going to know how to mix it together? And uh, there had to be a way to do that. So the monks at St. Savas and the monks at the Studium decided to write down how you mix it together in their communities. And they follow plans, which in the Tipicon, in the first part of it, is the, is the statement of principles of how you put those things together. And those principles only probably take up about 60 pages out of the whole book. And what they do is say, if you have to put together a Vesper service, you should make sure that on a normal day you'll have six verses on Lord I Call. The first three, generally, will come from the tone of the week out of the Ectoichos. The second three will probably come for the saint of the day. But you may have some two saints of the day. In case that happens, just take three for each of the saints and skip the stuff from the Ectoichos. But if it's a Saturday night, you're going to have ten verses on Lord I Call. You're going to have three for the saint of the day, the last three, and seven from the Ectoichos for the resurrection in the tone of the week. But maybe you have two saints for Saturday night. Well, then give them six and take four from the Ectoichos. And maybe, you know, it's one big saint and you want to give him seven, and, and it plays games like that. So they wrote it down, how to do that. And it, like I say, it only takes 60 pages. It's not... Uh, it's not a big involved sort of thing to have to learn. It's very simple. And it follows reasonable common sense after you understand how it works. And then, for, in case you couldn't figure it out, it goes month by month and lists all the big saints and what you do if they fall on a Sunday. In case you couldn't figure out how it worked from the beginning. So you, most people don't even read the first section. They go straight to the, the monthly section and say, Ah, today's February, who knows what, and it falls on a Sunday. How am I going to put this stuff for the saint of the day in there? And it'll tell you. And if the saints are falling close to Lent or in Lent, they'll tell you how to put the Octoichos, mix it with the Triodian, and how many for the saint of the day. It's remarkable. You don't have to think at all. It's all laid out there in black and white. So this was the way the church operated for a long time. In Constantinople, they were using the way the Studian crowd did it. In Palestine, they were doing it the way it was done at Marsavas. In Russia, they were doing some of each because they were using the monastic services from both centers and they were still using the old sung services of Byzantium clear to the 15th century. So they had a little bit of everything going on at once. Probably they're the most interesting uh, area to look at for liturgics because of all of the interesting and wonderful things they were doing all at once in different towns and villages and provinces. And there was no sense of liturgical uniformity in Russia whatsoever until 1682 when they had their liturgical reform under, under Nikon. And he said, let's do what the Greeks are doing. So they, they brought in the Tipicon, which was in use in the Greek world in that day. 
And amazingly, it was the Tipikon of Marsavas mixed with the, the uh, Tipikon of the Studian Monastery. Because you kind of guessed that was what was going to happen anyway. They mixed the two of them together because they mixed their books together. And they created a Tipikon, which they called that of Marsavas, but it isn't, strictly speaking, the ancient Tipikon of Marsavas. It's got an awful lot of the Studian monks in it. And that was what was roaming around in Greece all through the 14 and 1500s after the fall of Constantinople. And that's the one that was taken to Russia in 1682. So from 1682 until the present day, the only Tipikon in use in the church is the Tipikon of Marsavas as edited in Constantinople and in exactly the same redaction without change. That's a long time. 300 years, the church has been completely united with one single printed Tipikon. And I mean printed. Not manuscript copies from here or there, but a printed version. And that was a revolution in the church. We never had liturgical uniformity before, and we have had it since 1682. And people say, oh, we don't. You know, they do this over here and that over there. No, they don't. No, they don't. Everybody's really doing the same thing. There's nobody that doesn't mix the Triodion, the Ectoikos, and the saints in exactly the same fashion that we, that we just, you're not Byzantine if you don't do that. The, uh, what happened though is that, uh, like I said, this is a descriptive book. It says how we do things, not how we should do them, but how we do do them. And it happened that in 1888, somebody noticed that a lot of parishes weren't following the book. They were doing something else. So, George Vialakis, who was the uh, protopsalti of the great church of Constantinople, he was probably also a titular bishop of something or another, along with a committee, and you know what happens when you sit on committees. All sorts of bizarre things occur. Sat down to say, what is it that we're doing in our churches nowadays? And how should that be written up? And in 1888, they published it with the blessing of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And it came mm, slowly into use in all the Greek-speaking areas of the world. And probably you noticed that it, in the times just before that, ours was a... Greek-controlled patriarchate, if you're at all familiar with the history of our patriarchate. Uh, the Greeks took over in the middle of the 1700s because of the, uh, their great distress over the Melkite schism. So Greek-speaking styles of services were uh, in vogue in Antioch. Now, considering the confusion and the... And the uh, the terribly degraded condition of the church in Antioch under the Turks, <coughs> that services could go on in churches at all was a miracle. And, and you have to really look at it that way. The faith of the people has to be close to invincible if they can maintain an identity after being marginalized for several hundred years under a very hostile situation and impoverished as they were by really repressive taxes 
and a, and a ferociously repressive system to maintain their identity as Orthodox Christians with, with a solidarity with Constantinople of some kind in the villages. I'm not talking about the great centers like Aleppo and Damascus, but in the villages that they had parish churches that were open and services were being sung. And you find really tragic reports coming to the West from travelers who, who visited the East during the, the height of the Turkish oppression and talked about the faith of the people and how they still came together and sang hymns and did whatever they could of the liturgy. And that's the words that these travelers use, whatever they could of the liturgy. In churches that they couldn't keep up because they didn't have the funds to do it. The richest of the people were siphoned off by the uh, Melkite schism, you know. And an awful, lot, an awful lot of our people became Muslims. And we were left with, with very, very faithful, but very, very few, considering what we once had. So that the church life was, uh, was difficult. And then, according to the published histories, in 1833... Patriarch Methodius opened an ecclesiastical school, the only one of its type in the Patriarchate of Antioch, and he opened it at the Dormition Monastery uh, in Balamond, which was under uh, the, the uh, Metropolitan of Tripoli since 1603 anyway. And that church that was opened, that ecclesiastical school that was opened in 1833 was closed again in 1840, and it wasn't opened again until 1900, and it was closed again in 1914, and it wasn't opened again until 1936, and it was closed again in 1940. So you see, up until the Second World War, it wasn't opened very long, about 20 years altogether. And every monastery was helping to train priests. St. George in uh, Wadi Nasara, St. George Telkalach, actually was producing priests, training priests for the villages in the area. And when we opened our diocese over here, we got priests from St. George who were trained at St. George in Telkalach. And Hamaira, they call it. You don't... Uh, you don't hear of that very much anymore because that, it didn't continue as a theological school. But there were other monasteries doing the best that they could to try and train the clergy and make sure they could understand something of how services could be served. And uh, then our Balamand was opened again in 1945. And it stayed open till 1975. And you'd have to consider that the golden years of the Balamand, those 30 years, that it was open... Uh, the years that most of the clergy in this country that went there got to go there and be involved in it. And then it was closed again in 75. And when did it open again, Father? 77. 77. I know that uh, Elias Shalhoub, my classmate, uh, studied at uh, Salonika because uh, it was closed during those few years and he came here in 77. So it opened again. It's still, it's still open present. And it's part of the uh, university there now, where it has uh, 
probably a lot more opportunities than ever had before. But church life for us then, especially the, the training of clergy, was an iffy sort of thing. And a lot of our best clergy were trained by the Greeks at Chalki. Our own metropolitan went to Chalki for a while, and probably most of the bishops of the Patriarchate went to Chalki on and off at one point or another. Did you go to Chalki too? You didn't? It was closed by then, huh? Yeah, the Turks closed Chalki uh, in the present time, and it, it's... I just read that they, they disbanded the Board of Trustees, and everyone was up in arms. I thought, my gosh, the school's been closed. And they still had a Board of Trustees, and everyone's up in arms. Better they should... Uh, <laughs> what's the Board of Trustees doing if they don't have a school? Just hoping, I guess, that someday they can open it again. This country has had a, a tradition of, of church service for a hundred years now, even over a hundred years. But the first services were being performed by priests in the 1890s and 1880s all over this country, which is only about a hundred years ago. And they were bringing to this country that that they had treasured with a, with a fervency of faith that is, is really hard to imagine Unless you've read the life of St. Joseph of Damascus, for example, you get a touch of what church life was like in, uh, in Syria. And it was published, I know, in the Word magazine. Uh, Father Michel, I think, prepared it for us. And, and when you read that life and what they suffered and how, he's, how he died, you can get a, a, a clue of what, what it was like to be an Orthodox Christian in Syria under the, the, uh, the Turks and, and the, the terrible problems with the Druze and the riots that would go on and, and the, the martyrdoms that, that occurred, the number of monks and nuns who were killed during those years is, is phenomenal. I mean, you read about the, the millions that were killed by the, the, Nazis, the, uh, the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, but we haven't really published for our people the numbers that were killed under the Turks and the, uh, the terrible unrest in those, uh, in those Mideastern countries. And, you know, we're the, we're the victims, always. We're the victims, because we like to stay neutral. We don't take sides, and therefore no side protects us. And we end up being victims. Now, that's, that's laudable and good, because it's who we are. We stand for our, for our convictions, and we suffer for them. And these are the sort of people who brought the faith to this country in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, and actually formed churches uh, on, on nickels and dimes. They built those churches. And it was the women who built those churches because they saved their butter and egg money and they forced their husbands to make churches for their children. And we really, we can't ever pay the debt to those women. And then the clergy who came from the old country and who were ordained over here, who served the church, were remarkable figures, outstanding figures. Some of the best educated clergy of the patriarchate came here to serve in this country as missionaries. When, uh, when the, the Syrian community in, in Brooklyn asked Archimedes Raphael to come over, they knew they were asking for the very best that was, that was available. And he was teaching at that time at the Kazan Academy in Russia. And he was only one of three notable figures who were teaching in Russia at that time. Since the 1840s, the Russians, the Russians had been educating our clergy in their seminaries, and then keeping some of them to teach. So there was a very, very close and fraternal relationship between the Russians 
after the founding of their Palestinian society and our patriarchate, which benefited directly from them all those years. And it was through their agency that we gained back the patriarchate from the Greeks uh, at the very end of the 19th century when the Brotherhood of Antioch, uh, very much like the Brotherhood of the Holy Sepulchre, was put out, which caused us to be put under interdict and excommunicated by the ecumenical patriarch. And all sorts of exciting things which you can see truly affected our church life. I mean, when the Turks are crushing you, what difference does it make if uh, the ecumenical patriarch doesn't like you? <laughs> so, Archimedes Raphael, who was actively involved in all of that, too, uh, came to this country. He saw the need that was over here for a church life, and he also saw opportunities that they didn't have in the old country, and he started publishing. And the first things, you know, everyone says he founded the Word magazine. Yes, and that was wonderful that he did that, and we still have it. And if you have ever looked at the old editions of the Word magazine, you'll find that he used it as an organ for catechism. He was, I mean, you, you could almost hear him speaking when you heard Bishop Joseph this morning. This exactly was the concern of Bishop Raphael, that his people and his clergy should be saved. So every issue is full of sermons and historical backgrounds and teachings to try and, and raise his people's consciousness. It's, and, and of course, it's full of activities like all the baptisms. And still, Hans looks back there in those old editions for, for old baptism records if we need them, because they're not anywhere else. They were published in the Word magazine and they weren't filed. But thank God we have them. But what he also published, and far more important than that, were the liturgical texts. The first thing that he published in 1909 was the five-pounder, you know, the, what we call the Nasser book, the big five-pounder. And the 1909 edition is identical to your five-pounder. Yes, every error that, that, he, <laughs> that he made was, was maintained. There were three other editions of that five-pounder in Arabic, and they were all... Uh, edited by uh, Ananias Kassab, who was, I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant man, but he, he, re he reduced the book quite a bit and took some things out of there, like those wonderful appendices that have uh, explanations of everything in the church. Uh, all of those were in the 1909 edition. And then as quickly as he could in 1912, he published the Liturgicon for the Priests. And this this has ramifications for us that are beyond counting. Because this book, which was published back then, became, became already the, uh, the basis for our Red Book. This is the one Metropolitan Philip constantly says is the standard of our archdiocese. And this is where it came from. You know, the Red Book didn't drop out of heaven either. <laughs> Everything comes from someplace. And this tremendously educated, outstandingly pious, and uh, truly saintly figure. And we, we know that uh, the OCA has, uh, has actually de facto canonized him, uh, icons and everything. Uh, he probably deserves it. Uh, he gave us our liturgical life. 
he published in 1898. I mean, he wasn't here two years when he published his first little service book, and it's what he uh, expanded to make the five-pounder. It has everything in it, the epistles, the gospels, the order for liturgy, matins, vespers, uh, the paraclist, the acathist, uh, you name it, it's in there, and it's still only this big. And then he published in 1913 the Great Evcologion, uh, all the services for the blessings, for, for the occasional services, ma uh, marriages, funerals, what have you. And in 1914, he's, he put out a small Evcologion to match it. And uh, these service books have been reprinted. I mean, that Great Evcologion is, is printed now in Beirut, and I think it's become the patriarchal edition. Uh, that, these books, which he put together, and he titled, like the first three of them, the, the Consolation, the Solace, the Comfort, which is found, the true comfort, which is found in the divine services, uh, was for us the standard of our, our North American Antiochian practice. And when we talk about it, and, and try and, and, and produce it, and reproduce it, and we wonder, why should we do this? Well, it's because it's, all, it's sanctified with the blood of martyrs. That's why. There's probably not a church in orthodoxy that has suffered like our patriarchate has, and still maintained its identity as an orthodox church with, the, with something like a full church life. And then to transplant it into this country and immediately exploit the, uh, the, uh, the advantages here, not, not in those days to put up edifices that would rival the old country or become wonders of the world and not to build restaurants and uh, cultural centers and things like that, but to build, to, to print the services and the teachings of our Holy Church and that they spent lots of money on those things where your names are, and there's no benefactor's names in those books that he published. You don't see, you know, to the greater glory of, of this, that, or the other, uh, Apodopoulos. <laughs> it's, and this is really important because it's us. We are uniquely anonymous in the way we go about our church life. It's all to the glory of God and to the benefit of our people and their salvation. And this, which has become our custom and our, our tradition, is as sacred, as absolutely sacred as the relics of the martyrs, because it comes from their hands and from their blood. You know, Bishop Raphael died at a very young age, and he, everybody agrees that he worked himself to death. He poured out his life for this flock, us, and we, you know, a hundred years later, continue to benefit from his prayers and his work and his blessings. And without the work of these sort of people, we couldn't have what we have today. And we couldn't claim to be orthodox of any kind, because we wouldn't be. It wouldn't be there. And we wouldn't have the, uh, the wherewithal to do what we do. When we published the Liturgicon, this year, back a few years ago, it had ramifications that, uh, that were unforeseen. Every 
old calendar jurisdiction carries this book on their book list. And they put it in their, uh, their bookstores. Many of them serve out of it on Sunday morning. Synodal uh, priests who prefer the Greek style tend to use this book. It, was, uh, it had beautiful reviews, magnificent reviews. Uh, even, even when they, they said bad things about it, they were compliments to us. Because they said it, was, it, was, it had more information in it than the traditional books had. And there was no need in that, because priests are supposed to know what they're doing. But <laughs> the beauty of that was they admitted that it was there, that we had it. And about a year after that came out, the, uh, the Synod of the uh, Russian Church in Exile authorized a uh, dialogue between their diocese and ours based on our published books. Because they said, from what we publish, it was clear that we were the closest in spirit to them of any jurisdiction in the world. We, the Antiochians. And, you know, when we talk about the Synod, very often we jump and we get nervous. But they don't, they don't treat us really that way. They treat us with a, with a respect that we've earned because of our, of our love of Christ. The, uh, the priest's guide that you have was one of the basis of that dialogue. What Sedna Philip and before him Sedna Bashir published in that priest's guide they, no other jurisdiction can improve on because it says exactly what church life is supposed to be like and how clergy behave themselves and how they serve their parishes. And they love, the, every other jurisdiction loves what we do because we do it for the glory of God 